Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please turn uh, to your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Be reading Mark chapter 14. Verses 32 to 42. It's a moment of Jesus uh, last night before the cross, just after he's had uh, his last supper with his disciples. Let's listen to God's words together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. Now let me ask you, if you will, to turn back to our Scripture reading for this evening in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 14 and verses 32 through 42. If you were here this morning, it wasn't so long ago, I think you'll be able to remember that I suggested that today we would focus on two prayers of the Lord Jesus, one in John 17, the other here in Mark chapter 14, which from one point of view just seem to exist on their own. And uh, just in the course of ordinary exposition, uh, one year you might be going through John's gospel and come to this prayer and five years later on be going through Mark's gospel and come to this prayer of Jesus in chapter 14 that I want to especially focus on this evening. 
But I said in many ways, these two passages, especially uh, the two prayers, John 17, verse 24, and the prayer here in verse 36, are like two posters that cool people, cool Christians might have on their wall. Um, Or in ancient days, um, in medieval churches, you might find an artist painting two pictures that would go near the altar in the church. And while the pictures were separate, if you meditated on them, you would realize that the artist was actually finding a way of expounding Scripture to you. So that just as in a sermon... Uh, A preacher might say, well, if you turn from this passage to this other passage, you'll see how these two passages shed light on each other. And what I wanted to try to do with you today was to explore how these two dramatically different prayers of our Lord Jesus actually shed light on one another. The prayer of John 17, 24, Father This is what I want. I want those you have given me to be with me, to see me in my glory, the glory that you have given to me because you loved me from before the creation of the world. And then I imagine within an hour, at most two hours, we find Jesus in a very different place inwardly. And he is praying to his father, Abba, Father. Even, even more intimate an expression than in John 17. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Now you may well have prayed that kind of prayer. You're in a desperate situation and the first thing you say is, Lord, I know that you can do anything and everything. Everything is possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And the contrast could hardly be greater. John 17, confident approach to the glory of God. Father, this is what I will, and I know what I will is what you will. An hour later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, what I will is that this cup might be removed from me. But I know, can I be bold enough to put it this way, I know that what I want is not your plan. So, I hope we feel the tension. And interestingly, if we were to say, well, why does John not tell us about that tension? Actually, John tells us about this tension, but in a different way. He communicates the same message, but in a different way, and in a sense, in reverse order. Um, You remember how In John's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 14, now you do not need to have troubled hearts. 
And if you link that to his prayer, Father, I want them to see me in my glory. You understand why he's saying, you do not need to have troubled hearts. But the paradoxical thing is that in chapter 13, Jesus had said to his disciples, I have a profoundly troubled heart. And you see the connection. The connection is, it's because he has had a profoundly troubled heart that they don't need to have a profoundly troubled heart. It's because their troubles have been absorbed by him that they can be free of a troubled heart. And there's a similar kind of relationship between the prayer in John 17:24 and the prayer here in Mark 14:36. That's the connection. The one sheds light on the other, and the other explains the one. And in many ways, this, we might say, is an even more sacred spot in the story of the Gospels than John 17. At John 17, it seems to be just full of light. But Mark chapter 14 is, at least I find, a place where you feel you need to go very quietly on tiptoe. I mean, physically you could feel that, but mentally, spiritually, in terms of our ability to understand what is going on here in this transaction that is taking place, this, this conversation that is taking place between our Lord and His Heavenly Father. You feel in a way that if John 17 is the, is the holy place, then there is a sense in which we are now approaching the holiest place of all in the experience of our Lord Jesus. And it would be right for us to say, as Augustine says, I see the depth. I am not sure I can reach the bottom. So we want to tiptoe gently up to this. And I want to try to do that in three stages, to take three steps. The first is the most obvious step, and that is to underline the transformation that takes place here in our Lord Jesus' personal experience. And it's signaled in a whole series of ways. From one point of view, it's signaled geographically. In the upper room, sharing the Last Supper, experiencing this Passover meal, uh, teaching the disciples about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just one of the, the richest moments in their lives. And now here, Jesus, in the presumably the gloom of the Garden of Gethsemane, and in a completely different kind of atmosphere from where he has been an hour or so ago. And then even more than the geographical difference is the change in posture. And you remember how at the beginning of John 17, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. In the light of what happens here, it's almost as though you sense Jesus is seeing right through into the throne room of God. He has access to his heavenly Father. His heavenly Father has, as it were, stretched out the golden scepter to him and said to him, My son, everything I have is yours. Ask for anything. Uh, but here we're in a completely different posture. The eyes are not to heaven. Jesus 
is bowed down to the ground. He is overwhelmed. In John 17, it's almost as though he is lifted up. There is a a proper emotional ecstasy in the experience of our Lord Jesus. But here there seems to be an overwhelming personal agony. And that's the language that is, is actually used by the gospel writers. He was in an agony, face to the ground. And interestingly, there's a, there's a reverse direction, isn't there, from the prayer in John 17. John 17, he's on his own in the first part of the chapter, praying to the Father. And then he's gathered his disciples around him in the central section of the prayer, and then he gathers all of God's people around him. But here the direction is the reverse. Um, He comes to the gate of the garden and he leaves most of the disciples there. That's where they all are, except this small group that he takes with him, his special friends, Peter and James and John and and then there is the, the isolation. Um, he is as much the high priest consecrating himself here as he was the high priest in the upper room consecrating himself and his disciples and ourselves to the Lord. But now there is this radical transformation in his experience and he experiences some kind of terrible isolation so that the chief transformation is not so much in terms of location or in terms of posture or even in terms of company. The the chief transformation is in terms of our Lord Jesus' emotions. Ecstasy, joy in John 17. Glory. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, foreboding. And fascinatingly, I said in passing this morning that that, uh, probably Mark's gospel is Mark's recounting of Peter's stories about Jesus. And it's very easy to put this particular section into Peter's first person singular and read it as the narrative of someone who was, to some of it at least, an eyewitness. But if you think about it... um, there were elements of this that were even beyond Simon Peter's eye witness. But he knew because Jesus said that something had come over him. So you see in verse 34, Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. You know, the chief way our Lord Jesus expressed his emotional life was through the thought patterns and the vocabulary of the Psalms. Um, And he does that here. It's very reminiscent what he says here of the cries of the psalmist. Uh, the sense of desolation that they sometimes experience. And Jesus is experiencing it here. But... It's the way this is described from the outside in Mark's Gospel that is particularly telling. He took with him, verse 33, Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and 
troubled. You know, when you get old, you begin to have more sentences that begin, I remember. Partly because there's more to remember. Um, So, privilege me with the opportunity for one sentence tonight that begins, I remember. About 55 years ago, when I was a student in the Noble University down the road, I came across a paragraph in a book written by a 19th century Anglican bishop who was, by any measure, probably the greatest New Testament scholar in the English language in the second half of the 19th century. Fifty-four years ago, to be precise. You'll be thinking, I went to university straight from primary school, but it's, it's not actually true. <laughs> And the verb that Mark uses here is used only on two occasions in in the New Testament, which means it's actually more difficult to be absolutely certain what it means. It would be even more difficult if it were used only once. But here is the way I think probably the greatest New Testament scholar of the late 19th century teases out the meaning of this word, he began to be greatly distressed. And I've never forgotten the, the impact of his words on me, spiritually and emotionally. He says, this verb describes the restless, half-distracted state produced by physical derangement or mental illness, such as grief, or shame, or disappointment. Now, perhaps most of us do not yet have such an experience. Pretty sure some of us will have had such an experience. When something has happened, news has come to us. Something has turned our present, our future, and perhaps even our past upside down. And we feel the the impact of it, not just in terms of how do we understand what's happened. We feel our whole being is shuddering within. We are in a state of shock. We, We know something that we didn't know. We have learned something we never wanted to learn. And what Bishop J.B. Lightfoot was suggesting was That's why Mark chose this verb to express the profundity of Jesus' distress. And like all language, all language opens up into the reality it describes, doesn't it? But this language opens up into the reality of Jesus' heart, but at the same time we feel that we are we're just on the margins of it. The this tremendous sense of distress that Jesus now experiences that contrasts so sharply with the emotions of the upper room and the joy of the upper room and the glory of the upper room. And he began to be greatly distressed and to be troubled. 
And, and you see, what, what Mark is doing for us here is taking those words in John 13 and John 14 and John 17, and he's, he's kind of saying, so you want to know the heart trouble that Jesus said he was having in John 13. And you want to understand why it is that you do not need to have this heart trouble and why you can have a confidence that he is going to keep you for the sight of his glory because of the intensity of the love of his Father. Then the explanation of what was said in the upper room is actually out here in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus has this experience. Something has caused desolation in him. I sometimes wonder if this is the way we are to, to understand the significance of the, the two sacrifices that were made on the great day of atonement every year. The, the one sacrifice that was slaughtered and then this other goat, this animal that in English came to be known as the scapegoat that was taken out into the wilderness bearing the sins confessed by the priest over its head and, and was taken into this desolate place and, and as it were, just left to wander there. And this is what Mark seems to be feeling after when he speaks about this extraordinary transformation in the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it cries out for an explanation, doesn't it? Well, I think we can give a description if we can't give an explanation. Um, if there is a transformation in our Lord's experience, the, the immediate reason appears to be the focus of our Lord's gaze. That's the second step I want us to take. What is He looking at? Father, everything is possible for you. Verse 36. Remove this cup from me. So what is causing the distress is this cup. So what is this cup? And I think again, as we saw in a way this morning, the answer to that is, well, we use that kind of language, don't we? You know, we, we sometimes sing about our cup overflowing, or, or we, we are tasting a bitter cup. Jesus doesn't think in these general terms. Um, just as Jesus' emotional life comes to expression in, in the way in which he sees the experience of the psalmists who were united to him by faith played out in his own life. I have very little doubt that this cup has a very specific meaning. It is the cup about which the prophets frequently spoke. Let me give you just a few illustrations. Here is Isaiah. Wake yourself up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup of staggering. That's Jesus' life here, isn't it? He's staggered by what he sees in this cup. 
Or again, here is the prophecy of Ezekiel. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. Now, what will that mean? You shall be laughed at and held in derision. You will be filled with sorrow. It is a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out. And you can almost see hints of what is about to happen to Jesus in the description of this cup. And then again in the prophecy of Habakkuk. You are about to experience the wrath of God. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And you can almost, you can almost trace the line between those words and these two passages that we've been talking about today. Glory in the presence of the Father. But that glory now is being turned to what Jesus understands is going to be shame. He's going to be shamed. That's what they will do to him. They will shame him. They will mock him. They will deride him. They will demean him. They will strip him naked. They will shame him. And I think clearly this is what our Lord is beginning to experience in a way that he clearly had not experienced before. What is amazing to me is that all his life, all his conscious life, he must have known this was ahead. But now it's come near. He's at the door. You know, you can live with things as long as you know they're ten years away or five years away or even three years away. But then it comes near. It might be major surgery. It might be some great crisis. It might be our death. We know it's going to happen. But this is no ordinary death. This is death. This is death that will mean for Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, I am forsaken. Why? And this is his understanding of this cup. He understands this is the cup of the wrath of God. You know, if you were a movie maker, I think at this point, just to give the viewers a hint of what is going on here, I think if I were a movie maker, I would just have a momentary flashback to the passage that precedes in John's Gospel, where Jesus' last words were about the cup of blessing that he was giving to his disciples that was emblematic of their communion with him in the forgiveness of sins and in the grace of God. And his, his last words were, I'm not going to drink of this cup of blessing again until I drink it in my heavenly Father's kingdom. And in that way, a movie maker would have said, if you want to understand why this cup is so awful, you need to understand it's the explanation why that cup is so blessed. So as we move in on tiptoe, as I say, we see this dramatic transformation of our Lord's experience and then we see this focus of our Lord's gaze that 
isn't this bringing us to the very heart of the gospel? Isn't this, I mean, this is a picture that a child could understand. Jesus gave the disciples his cup of blessing and he went into the garden of Gethsemane and took their cup of cursing. It's a a dramatic expression of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, isn't it? He was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or in Galatians 3.13, God's curse fell upon him in order that God's blessing might come to us. Or what Isaiah had prophesied in ancient days, he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that would bring us peace would be upon him, and with his stripes we would be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's what our forefathers called the great exchange, isn't it? He takes what is mine. He drinks the last dregs of the cup of God's judgment in my place because he wants to give me the cup of his fellowship with God, his cup of blessing. Now, that takes us to the third step, and the third step is a step in which I think we, we, we need to go very much quietly in awe. Because the third step is to reflect on the profundity of our Lord's prayer. And here I think we need to go very slowly because I know I have an instinct to go as quickly as possible. And I I think that's probably an instinct preachers share and, and perhaps all Bible readers share. Father, if it's possible, he says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the really important thing. He says, but what you will. But we mustn't rush on to that. Because it's what he said immediately preceding that that actually is so shattering to us. He has said to his father, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I want. And the reason we rush on to it is because of a very natural fear that we might be saying or thinking that Jesus wants something that is against the will of his Father. And actually, if you read through the history of the Christian church dealing with this passage, you see again and again the fear, the right fear that Christians have had that we might understand this passage. But friends, We don't really understand it until we realize that Jesus didn't want this for himself. Indeed, we need to go further and say, if you think about it, Jesus couldn't have wanted this for himself and have been a holy man. Because this cup was the cup of desolation. This cup was the cup that would bring him into this unfathomable experience of feeling he was deserted by his heavenly Father. He couldn't want that and be holy. Could he? 
Could you want that and be holy? If you were a holy person, could you say to the Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I'm happy that you turn your face against me and pour out your wrath upon me. I want that. It will be the delight of my life. Of course you couldn't pray like that. Friends, in order to be perfectly holy, Jesus has got to pray this. Because a perfectly holy one wants to live in the unclouded presence of his Father's smile constantly. But you see, the marvel of it is, and this is why I think it's so important we don't just rush on to the second statement. The marvel of the second statement lies in the first statement. If the first statement was ho-hum, that's fine with me. There would be nothing marvelous about the second statement, would there? The marvel of the second statement is that Jesus is willing to do something for our sakes that there isn't a moment of instinct in him to want to taste for himself. And you know, I think there's a reason for that. If you think back to the opening chapters of Genesis, I think you'll see the reason for it. Do you remember the, the narrative in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 about the first sin and rebellion against God had to do with eating the fruit of a tree? Now, despite everything we may have been taught by the books we may have been read, it seems to me that Genesis makes it perfectly clear there was no actual difference between this tree and any other tree. And I say that because Genesis almost goes out of the way in Genesis 2 and 3 to describe this forbidden tree in exactly the same terms as every other tree. It was attractive to look at and its fruit looked juicy and delicious. So that if you were standing before that tree, you would naturally have noticed no difference between that tree and every other tree. The difference lay not, if I can put it this way, in the tree itself, but in what God said about the tree. And the reason for that was this. Adam and Eve instinctively obeyed the loving Father. But here he was asking them to do something that there was no answering instinct in them to do. The natural instinct was this tree is as beautiful to look at and its fruit looks as delicious as every other tree. The natural thing to do is to reach out and take the fruit just as we reach out and take every other fruit. So what's going on here? Well, it's fairly simple really, isn't it? It's very understandable. The Heavenly Father is saying, look, I've put all these instincts in you and they're instincts to conform to my will but I want you to obey me as a specific illustration of your trust in me and your love for me and your desire to obey me because I am your loving Heavenly Father. That you don't have any natural instinct that says, mustn't touch that tree. It's like a father saying to his children, 
Just do it because I love you. And because you trust me. And you see what's happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, There it's a matter of eating. Here it's a matter of drinking. What Jesus is being drawn into is a willingness to do for our sakes what he has no natural instinct in his holy humanity to do for himself. And you see, when you see it that way, you you begin to understand what's happening here. That Jesus has come not just in some kind of external way to deal with our sin. He's come to get under, as it were, right down into the very roots of our sin and begin to uproot that sin, to reverse that sin, and to begin what the Apostle Paul calls a new creation. That's why Augustine says, I see the depth, I cannot reach the bottom. This is the mystery of this prayer. This prayer that's so full of tension, so full of tension that we want to to cut that tension so that it will be bearable to us. He's saying, Father, there's nothing in me that desires to drink this cup. Every ounce of holy humanity in me shrinks from drinking this cup that would mean I would experience your face turned away from me. But Father, this is your will. I know this is the plan. I understand this is for their salvation. So not what I naturally naturally will, but what you will. And you can sense this is a decisive moment in our Lord's ministry as he reaches out and takes this cup and drinks it to its last dregs. This is the sheer mystery of his humanity. Um, This is where we touch the impenetrable fact that he is one divine person, that he has two natures, and that he has two wills, a human will and a divine will. And at this point, there is nothing in that holy human will that can desire to be separated from God. But he submits that holy human will to the will of the Divine Father for our sake. I won't, as it were, ever want to do this for myself. But I so want to do your will. I so want to save them. Father, not what I will, but what you will. And when you see it that way, then it begins to make sense of John 17, 24, doesn't it? He's able to say that, Father, this is what I want, and I know you'll grant it. Because within an hour, he's, he's willing to do what nothing in him wants to do. Because despite what he doesn't want to do. He wants to please the Heavenly Father and save us more than any natural instinct in him 
never to have a moment when he is separated from a conscious sense of the presence of his heavenly Father. And that's why I say these two posters are on the same wall. These two altarpieces are before us like a, an artist helping us to understand the inner significance of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And why I say when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, we need to come on tiptoe. Because here we're coming to the very heart of the gospel. Here we are seeing what Paul would later say, in the first Adam, sin enters into the world because of his disobedience to the clear revelation of God's will. A revelation that didn't touch his instincts, but touched his obedience to the Father. Oh, wisest love that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail should strive against the foe again, should strive and should prevail. It's an, it's, a, it's an awesome moment. It's a wonderful moment. And there's some marvelous lessons for us. I, I, I must stop in a minute, but let me just point out some of the lessons. Number one is, in a sense, what I, you may have picked up from what I hinted earlier on. What should you think about when you come to the Lord's table? When the cup is offered to you. The cup that Paul very explicitly calls the cup of blessing. You and I should think, I receive this cup of blessing because he has taken my cup of cursing. This is the great exchange. It's not the minister who says to me, take and drink. It's Jesus who says to me, take and drink, because my Father said to me, take and drink, and I drank. So drink. Because these are not bitter dregs. These are all the blessings of my grace to you. So it's such a help to us when we come to the Lord's table. There's something else that helps us to understand. It helps us to understand why there is no other way of salvation. Like me, you have met people who will say, I'll find another way of salvation. I'll find another way of salvation. And I in awe inwardly think, I, I do not want to see you standing before the judgment seat of God and saying, I've found another way of salvation when Jesus has gone to these lengths for our salvation. I can only put it in human terms, that in human terms, I imagine the Father saying, do you not think that if there was another way of salvation other than this, I would have found it? This is why Peter says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the third thing it teaches us, I think, is how much Jesus loves us. It's as simple as that. He loves us this much. And what in a sense is so marvelous and mysterious is that to this point in Jesus' ministry. This is the high point of Jesus' Father's love for him. 
that he would do my will rather than what is his holy instinct, that he would do that because he trusts me, he wants to obey me as my eternal son, he wants to bring them salvation. This is one of the moments when, if we can put it into the the imagination of heaven, this is one of the moments when not only we, but his Father would be singing, my Jesus, I love you, I know you are mine. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. And you see that connects to his prayer, doesn't it, in John 17:24, that if we've seen him here loving us, what will it be to see him there on the other side of it all in his glory and still loving us? And what is it now for you and for me as Christian believers to know that the one who prayed this way in the Garden of Gethsemane prays for us that we will be brought through to the place of glory. So two pictures on the wall. Bright shining picture of John 17:24, The contrasting dark picture. But you see, the light is the reason for the darkness. And the darkness is the reason for the light. Awesome, really, isn't it? Because he is such a saviour. And the more you know him, the more you realise how much he has done for you. And if he has done this for you, what could be too great for you to do for him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for We thank you for the record of your ministry that we find in the Gospels. We thank you for the way in which those words that we thought about this morning come true, that your Holy Spirit led the apostles into the truth and they inscribed that truth for the rest of history in the pages of the New Testament and that we can therefore know these things about our Saviour. And we pray as we reflect on them that you would draw us close to him. We thank you that he is all that we shall ever need. That if he has loved us this much, we can be sure that he will love us to the end. We thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were sinners, he died for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit pouring out into our hearts this marvelous love. We pray you would flood us with it, that we in our weakness and frailty and sinfulness may learn to live more and more in the light of Christ's sacrifice for us in the past and his bringing us to glory in the future. So help us, we pray, as we have begun another week to live as those who know that we are loved by such a great Savior and to love him in return. We pray this in your name. Amen.